Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technology. And given that China is the huge influence on technological innovation and U.S. technology capabilities, we're talking today about China. Our guest is Barry Naughton. He's the So Quan Lok Chair of Chinese International Affairs at UC San Diego. He's one of the world's most highly respected economists working on China. He's an authority on the Chinese economy with an emphasis on issues relating to industry, trade, finance, and China's transition to a market economy. His most recent book, The Rise of China's Industrial Policy, 1978 to 2020, is what we're talking about today. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've really been focused on China for, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 years, uh, kind of starting when I was co-chair of the U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group with the Obama administration. I have to say, Barry, I've relied on your work over those years, and not just your latest book, but other books, articles, so really, really found them super helpful and would really encourage our readers, anybody who, you know, want to go deeper into this, pick up Barry's new book. Really, really fascinating book. And while it has academic rigor, it's really fun to read. It's not, it's not a slog. So uh, that, that can, that can so help. It's available as a free download. So we'll link to it. In You're not our supposed show to notes. say that. You're supposed to buy the book. <laughs> That's buy, all right. Buy Barry's book. You can download it. Just make sure you cite it. Exactly. Anyway, as I said, I thought your book was really insightful. I, I learned a lot. One of the points that you, you really made quite clear was that there have been two phases of Chinese economic and tech policy, sort of pre-2006 to 2008 and post. And can you explain that for our listeners? What, what, what does that really mean? What does it imply? I mean, China, uh, from the outside, it always looks as if the Chinese government is planning everything and programming everything. And, and it's easy to see a continuity in the last 40 years of Chinese policy. But the reality is when you go back before about 15, 20 years ago, the efforts of China to really implement a government-steered technology and industrial policy really came to nothing. I mean, they were they were unrealistic targets. They didn't have resources to put behind it. And so they have really almost no role in the Chinese economic miracle. When you really look deep into the Chinese economic miracle, what you see is big changes in, in economic structure, but changes that are driven by unequal pace of liberalization. Things like, you know, export garments gets liberalized and we see big growth in that sector. So it's really marketization becomes industrial policy. And then around 2006, as they face the fact that the Chinese economic miracle is sort of running out of steam because they don't have these huge reserves of labor anymore, they really start to get serious about industrial policy. They start to issue targets and refine the targets. They, tend to, they start to put money behind it through many different channels. So it's really only in that decade plus that they're really doing a, a kind of big push industrial policy of the kind that I think by today, of course, people clearly associate with China. I think you say this in the book, but if you characterize China pre-06, 
It was really an industrial recruitment or industrial attraction strategy. It was opening up China to the world as a production base. And they're, you know, Deng Xiaoping doing that in what, 81 or whatever that was in Guangzhou and other places. And that was a highly successful strategy. But then, as you know, they felt like they needed to do something more. And in a way, I mean, one of the really funny things about China at this crucial turning point about 2005, 6, 7, is for all of our research, we cannot find that there was any kind of deep fundamental decision. Oh, no, we're going to do it different now. It was just this incremental process where partly for political reasons, partly for economic reasons, partly for technological reasons, gradually they start relying more and more on direct government intervention and, of course, direct party intervention. And it just, you know, at first it's almost like a compromise between the, you know, there's a group of market reformers who want to go faster. And even in China, there's still a group of old-fashioned conservatives who actually wanted to roll back reform. And this strategy was sort of in the middle. It was, well, we're not going to roll back market reforms, but we'll guide the economy more. We'll put more money into the into more of the high-tech sectors. So it gradually, you know, shifts onto a different trajectory. And then that trajectory then just, of course, becomes stronger and stronger. It feeds on itself and pushes on itself and becomes the overwhelming complex of policies that we see today. And what do you think was the overarching goal they saw in all of this? I think, especially initially, uh, the overriding goal was simply to make a smooth transition from a kind of labor-intensive growth to a much more innovation and technology-driven growth path. I mean, that's, I think, what, what got them started. Of course, if you're th- thinking about China, Chinese Communist Party, it's always thinking about security, too. So I think growth was the prime driver, but just a half a step behind it is the idea. China needs to be more secure. It needs to be a stronger power. It's got to watch out for conflict with the unnamed other, who is, of course, always the United States. You know, one thing that always, I mean, puzzles maybe too strong a word, but when I go to China, when I've met with Chinese officials either there or here, one thing that I think is clear to me is they don't really have an overarching domestic productivity strategy. You know, their ag sector is still, there's a lot of, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, for example. They're I remember going once into a little shop in a hotel and there was somebody to take my sandwich and then they handed it to a person who put it into a bag and then there was a third person to take money. You know, I know part of that's just they got a lot of workers, but the Chinese officials I've talked to, they see the way to gain productivity as going up the value chain rather than, in addition, maybe broad-based productivity in retail and logistics and finance and all that. You have thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the one of the difficulties for those of us who track China is there's always something new to follow. And so uh, the temptation to sort of be continuously distracted by all the new policies is is kind of overwhelming. And we often forget to stop and say, well, wait a minute, this certain things didn't happen that we were talking about a decade ago. And one of the things that didn't happen was China never rebalanced. I mean, when China was so 
imbalanced in its external account so that it had an enormous trade surplus 2006, 7, 8. You know, it also had a very high investment rate. And then with the global financial crisis, it pushed its investment rate way up, way up. So many of us were saying, well, it's going to rebalance to a more consumer driven strategy. You've heard that for 10 years. You still hear it today. But it's never happened. It's still this government driven investment led strategy. Now, why did I go on that long digression when you asked me about, you know, a broader concept of innovation and and productivity? It's because I think the two go together and are almost the same thing. In other words, they had an opportunity to say, well, now we're going to allow consumers a much greater voice. And that means there's going to be innovation across the board. Yeah, more high-tech stuff, but also more products, more services, things that are, appeal more to this now middle-class, you know, sort of half-middle-class uh, economy. And, of course, income growth has been so fast, there's still been plenty of that. But as a strategy, it really is the road not taken. And I think it's a big disappointment. I think it's important that we call it out and say, hey, China never rebalanced. It became even more government-led. And the role of the consumer has never been fully brought into play. What's been the role of President Xi in all of this? He's such a strong driver of everything. I mean, because he is, you know, because his ideas are so complex um, and, and frankly, contradictory. But also that he has a vision of the role of the Communist Party that is almost unbelievably backward looking. I mean, He believes in a party that is composed of a a, a politically active elite. He wants the difference between party members and ordinary citizens to be greater, not less, because they're supposed to be a vanguard. They're supposed to be more responsible, right? I mean, we, of all the things that have happened in China in the last 30 years, this to me is the most unexpected. Because this was sort of the lesson that we learned from the catastrophe of the Cultural Revolution. It was that this kind of hyper-politicized approach leads to disaster. And yet, here we are again. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Xi Jinping is going to take us back into a, a cultural revolution, but that there are certain aspects of that that he completely believes in. And so in the same way, if you imagine that vision on a kind of party personal level, I'll just transpose it to a national development strategy level. You see exactly what you see in China today, which is sort of everything for the team. The team has to strengthen the nation. The way to strengthen the nation is high technology. I mean, they say innovation, but what they mean is high tech with, of course, the distinction that Rob just just brought up uh, a few minutes ago. So it's she's a big driver, absolutely. You see that when I, I can't remember how long ago, a year or so, or two years ago, where they mandated that most medium and large sized companies now have to have a representative of the party in there. You know, it was funny. I, one time when the strategic and economic dialogue was going on, and so I was over there as part of my role as this Obama task force on China, and um, so. 
the members and a bunch of USG folks, we went on on this tour and, and, we, and we ended up visiting a, a very large state-owned enterprise. And we're in, it was in Beijing and we're in the lobby and we're waiting to meet with the number two deputy CEO. And uh, I, I'm in the lobby and I'm watching and they, they have this little display thing of the company's history going back. It was formed, I think, in you know 1913 or I don't know what it was. But what was really interesting is the very first placard was Marx. <laughs> then it was Lenin, <laughs> then it was Stalin, then it was Mao, and then it was the country. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that it's just so right out there in front. <laughs> of course, it's inside a state-owned enterprise where not that many people necessarily venture, right? I mean, you're an, you're an honored guest, but uh, I'll bet they don't get too many uh, too many foreigners. Yeah, I mean, it, and this kind of, of, this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately because, you know, translation is a big, is a big issue, right? I mean, you say things in Chinese, you have to say them in English. They have a whole strategy for not saying the same thing in Chinese as in English. Now, I mean, it's most obvious in the sense that when, when Xi Jinping leaves the country in English, he's President Xi. And when he returns to the country in Chinese, he's General Secretary Xi. Because Within the country, everybody understands that the party rules. But in terms of dealings with foreigners, he has to be the president because that's a kind of protocol-based thing. And there are other things like this, too. There's a line in the uh, most recent party congress that says the Communist Party leads everything. North, south, east, west, students, businessmen, workers, farmers, you know, etc., and the English translation says the Communist Party exercises overall guidance over all important issues. So it's not quite the same thing, you know. So, Barry, I want to kind of, this is fascinating, I want to kind of jump down a little more in, in, in specific levels. One of the things that you wrote about in there, which was really interesting, because we followed these a little bit, but you had a lot of detail in this new policy tool they call industrial guidance funds. What are they? How do they work? How big are they? What's going on there? Yeah, I, this in, in conception, I think this is, if you're going to follow this kind of government-guided policy, this is a, a very smart thing to do. I mean, it's essentially a kind of clone of a venture capital fund, with the key difference being that almost all the main actors are state-owned entities. But you, just as in a venture capital fund, you separate between a, a strategic partner and a limited partner. The strategic partner is the one responsible for making the, the actual investment decisions. The limited partners provide capital and come together you know, twice a, twice a year or quarterly to discuss the investment strategy. So you've got much stronger incentives for the investor, uh, much more specialization in, in who's making the decision. So, so it's a good idea. But of course, this being China, what we see is lots and lots of money pours into these. Uh, oversight is, you know, it's not horrible. It's better than some of the alternatives, but it's still not, you know, a truly market-driven thing. Or, or rather, it's market-driven, but it's always buffered by politics and by other types of goals. But it's a, they're definitely big players. You know, they've raised hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, that have then been passed on into investments in the crucial high-tech sectors. I think among these people are most likely to be familiar with the semiconductor fund, 
which is, has done two, two big rounds, all of which are fully invested at this point. Yeah. I met with the guy who runs that once, and uh, you know, he talked a good line. He said, well, you know, this is a purely private sector-driven initiative. We're just an investment fund. And <laughs> I can't remember whether I said it or not, but I certainly knew it, which is, aha, uh-huh, and you mean the, your fund on Monday was 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 uh, staffed up by 25 people from MIIT, Ministry of Information Technology and Industry, or whatever it's called. They just moved from MIIT over to his fund from Friday to Monday, and it was funded by like the state tobacco, C, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. state-owned enterprise. It was like they have a good facade of being private because they know it's a WTO issue. But as you point out in the book, there's a lot of government money there, and you know, they what they end up doing, of course, is. Uh, not surprising, they sort of tend to separate into two classes of investment. And in one, you've got a target rate of return of, you know, 20%. And in the other, you've got a target rate of return of essentially zero. Try not to lose your money because these are, but but you need to support these because they're strategic yeah. uh, for the nation. And even then, I mean, I think a, a really important thing to watch will be now that these have been in operation for a couple of years, some of them, of course, should be failing. And an interesting question will be, how many fail? What do they do? Do they legitimately let them go bust and, and you know, take a loss? Or do they try to sort of keep them afloat forever in order to avoid acknowledging the, the loss of money? Another term we hear is civil-military fusion. Hmm. I mean, again, it's one of these things that, come initially from the Chinese looking at the United States and they go, oh, wow, look at, in our system, we have these narrowly defined military industrial firms. And then, you know, we've got capabilities in the civilian economy, but we can't tap them. Look at, look at the United States. They're so smart. They've got Boeing, you know, they've got Lockheed that, that combine these things. And so it's really initially an attempt to emulate that model. But of course, again, it's China. So once they start down a road, they always go further than 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 you expect. So it it becomes a conscious effort to first of all emphasize to private firms that they have a responsibility in the Chinese system; they have to participate in this. And second, to sort of tap into through various mechanisms, really a whole range of, of mechanisms to tap into the expertise in artificial intelligence and new materials and other things that are that are developing in the non-state sector and the private sector and to make sure that those are accessible by military and defense industry related projects. So, you know, Barry, one of the to me to me the key things that I think people in the US particularly I think a lot of the trade policy establishment people and Kind of conventional economists, they they don't quite understand about China. They look at this and they just see inefficiency. And of course, from a sort of capital allocation efficiency argument, yeah, the enormous amount of inefficiency. There's no, no, I don't think anybody questions that. But what they're missing, though, is the notion that certain industries are strategic in the world we now live in. And the Chinese recognize that. And they're willing to suffer inefficiencies to gain a competitive advantage in strategic industries like semiconductors and quantum and the like. And we still seem to be having this 
viewpoint of potato chips, computer chips, what's the difference, which was a Michael Boskin quote supposedly back in the first Bush administration. Do you think China, so, I mean, my impression is China sees that they have really two parts of their economy. They have a strategic part and they have a non-strategic part and the strategic part they manage and this non-strategic part they're willing to sort of let it go by how markets work. Is that too simple? No, I think that's 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 a, a good characterization. I mean, I think the other thing is that they there's a, a parallel conception that I think often overlaps, and that is they, they really believe in a, shall we say sort of strategic competition and bigger is better. So they there is this belief that really filters through so many different players in the economy that they need to build up a few large-scale international competitors so that they can have heft. And, of course, obviously you see this with the, some of the big state-owned enterprises. But I think you also see it with the attitude toward Huawei and other, you know, and Alibaba and Tencent, that, that there's a strong belief, in other words, in national champions. Now, of course, the national champions are going to, in many cases, overlap with the strategic technological sectors. But, but I think in terms of the, the big problem for, for trade policy is that both these things are going on. And I think that they have basically decided that they've developed a range of tools that will allow them to participate in the world trading system with all these tools in place to promote their national champions. And, and that's where I sort of come back to how you started this question with what is it that the kind of standard trade people don't get? I think they don't quite understand the magnitude of the subsidization tools and the strategic willingness to support national champions that motivates Chinese policy in, in trade and technology areas. Yeah, they, I mean, uh, too many of, I think, of the folks who've, you know, growing up and, and built their careers in U.S. trade policy have fundamentally have a Ricardian perspective of comparative advantage. And we'll do, we do very well in aerospace and biotech and somebody else might do well in chemicals or something else. And, and that that's kind of market-based. And your point about that is, is critical. I thought you we made a really interesting point about, about scale. Like if you look at CRRC, for example, they're a state-owned high-speed rail company. My colleague, Nigel Corey, wrote a really nice report on that. I mean, they, they actually had two big state-owned rail companies and it wasn't good enough for them. And so they merged them into one big one. And I compare and contrast that to where antitrust is going in the U.S. right now, where it's almost the opposite. It's saying we've got too many big companies. We should be trying to break them up. You know, and our position on, on those issues is there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's good for antitrust authorities to be looking at anti-competitive conduct. Uh, companies shouldn't be allowed to manipulate their market share, market position to anti-competitive. But I do think that a lot of the antitrust folks today are missing the importance of scale in this big, giant global economy and that the Chinese fundamentally understand that they have to have scale if they want to dominate. Now... Here we, I think we've been agreeing on so many things here. Let me let me just introduce a complication to that. Sure. Because one of the interesting things we – because what the way you laid it out is certainly true in terms of state firms, right? No question. And there was a definite turning point. The railroad construction companies are a perfect example of this. They had them split. 
in order to produce competition. And then they changed their mind and said, no, we want scale. And they re-emerged them. So that's, you know, that's a really important change in Chinese policy that, we, that people need to probably be more aware of. We have seen something funny this summer, right, which is that for the Internet giants, the Chinese government has been willing to rein them in and impose some restrictions on anti-competitive behavior of various kinds, including sort of specific abuses, but also by limiting the way that big internet firms like Alibaba and Tencent can use their data. They, they now have much stronger restrictions on how they can you know, cross-use data across different business sectors. And it's been tough on these co- companies. They've lost a lot of their stock market value. And, and Xi Jinping has essentially said, I don't care. You know, this is the way it is. We have data security, which means for him very much a national defense thing, that data is protected within the country, but also within the country, only the government has access to all the data and Alibaba and Tencent no longer no longer do. So, I mean, it's funny because I think some people look at this and they say, well, in this area, China is actually ahead as a regulatory standard setter. I don't think it's quite that simple because because there's, these decisions are still too politicized to be just simply labeled regulation. They're, they're a part of a complex maneuver between the state and private businesses. But but we could say that, that there are a few things in there, at least, that they've been willing to do that so far we haven't been able to generate the political consensus to do in the United States. Right? Everybody's unhappy with Facebook, but nobody can seem to begin to agree on what it is we need to do to, to make that up a better. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we could talk for a long time, but we have to close, so I, I won't. But I will say just this one thing, I think, is there are a lot of people who looked at that immediately and sort of used it to advance their agenda in the U.S. All we need to... Sure. Come. And I always looked at it a little bit like... I looked at it exactly like you did. Very complex what they're doing there. Some of it to me, like, like particularly with Jack Ma, was a shot across the bow. Hey, Jack, you know... Don't look, don't get too much power here. Don't get your head too big because we're still in charge. So I think there's a lot of different things going on there. But the one thing that they haven't done is trying to break the companies up. I, I, they're, they're regulating them, which is, you can argue good or bad, but I still see them. I mean, they want to see those, those digital champions out in the Belt and Road countries and gaining market share there, I think. I think for sure that's right. And and the other thing that people, I mean, I think there is a view out there in the markets that is way too Pollyannish about what Chinese regulators have been doing this year, because what they're, what they're not seeing is that along with the enhanced regulation, there's also this willingness on the part of Chinese government to use new sets of instruments that they know to be costly and not very effective. And so it, it actually also represents a a worrying, if you're China, shift away from an assumption that market conforming instruments are best. Now they're just kind of saying, eh, whatever works, we're going to do it. Right. And what the, what the long-term costs are, too bad. Let the chips fall where they may. It does seem like in the last year, they've kind of gone in a new direction. Barry, unfortunately, we have to close. I mean, maybe we can have you back another time. This is such a really interesting discussion. So uh, thank you so much. I'd love to. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. 
If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 